Hello, folks. I'm a carbon atom. And since I'm an essential part of each of the hydrocarbons in crude oil, I'm here to give you the inside dope on gasoline. I'm Chris Stemp, currently the sick one. I'm Donnie Stemp, almost always the healthy one. It's the week of September 26, 2022. The atmospheric carbon number is 414.7 parts per million. Welcome to the week on Earth. All right, Christopher. Yes, sir. Carbon. Yeah. Carbon dioxide. I'm aware. That's pretty much it. That's that's what we got. I know carbon is the building block of all life. Carbon dioxide is the biggest contributor to the greenhouse gases that are causing climate change, right? Yeah. I'm. Yeah. Well, you messaged me and said, hey, would you do some research before we talk? And so I did. And I realized two things. Number one, no wonder why nobody knows why it's important, because it's too hard to understand. Number two, carbon has a branding issue. Mm. It needs to rebrand itself in an understandable threat that we all can eliminate. And let me let me help those listening. The one thing I took away is carbon traps infrared radiation. And essentially, that's why it is a greenhouse gas that warms the planet. It just traps the heat in the gas. Boom. End of story. Right. And so on one level, I think we don't need to understand the science of all this. On another level, we need to understand the basics. And it's just uh, maddening to try to understand. I'm trying to understand some numbers, right? We're going to get into why we talk about the atmospheric carbon number on the show, because that is one concept and one number I understand. When we start talking about metric tons of carbon and gigatons and the metric system in general, I space out. Well, that doesn't give our listeners a lot of confidence as they're about to invest 30 minutes in an episode on carbon dioxide. So can you actually now say what they will gain from this, please? Well, we do have experts. Oh, right. We have two experts we're talking to today. They will shed some light. Number one, we've got the guy who posts the atmospheric carbon number that we mentioned at the beginning of every show. So I reached out to the guy who created it, Mike McGee, and asked him. We'll be talking to him in a few minutes about atmospheric carbon. Then we have a scientist, uh, an X-Prize-winning UCLA scientist, Dr. Guarov Sant, on the show, doing all kinds of amazing science, pulling carbon from both concrete and the ocean. So here's, as the salesperson, here's what I'll say. Not only will you leave with a better understanding of what carbon is, why it impacts climate change, you'll also understand a little bit about how we're going to get out of this problem, how we can actually likely engineer ourselves out of the carbon issue, which is really what we all want to know. We'll get into that big idea in just a few minutes. But first, it's time for the news of the week week on on Earth. NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, has released its summer 2022 climate report, outlining extreme weather from June to August in the U.S. According to ABC News, summer of 22 ranks as, a drumroll please, the third warmest on record. 
2.5 degrees above average, coming in just 0.01 degrees behind 1936, the height of the Dust Bowl. Hot overnight lows broke records for the warmest low temperature this summer, bottoming out at 86 degrees overnight. And while some parts of the country saw drought, others saw massive flooding. Las Vegas had major floods that flooded casinos and left two dead. I'm just going to say, hopefully it spared the Bellagio. It's one of my favorite places. Anyways, relentless rain came to Louisiana and Mississippi, where flash flooding in Jackson submerged cars, stranded people, and left more than 150,000 people without clean water for weeks after the flood contaminated the water treatment facility. The Texas governor declared a disaster for 23 counties in Texas from rainfall though the rain did somewhat alleviate an exceptional drought there. And across the world, Europe experienced its hottest summer ever on record. London hit 104 degrees on July 19th. Globally, June to August tied for the fifth warmest year in 143 years of records. And now all top five warmest summers have occurred since 2015. In billionaire news, Mike Bloomberg announced he is planning to spend $85 million to block construction of plastic and petrochemical plants across the U.S. According to Reuters, the campaign takes aim at the expansion of petrochemical and plastic pollution, which is growing rapidly. The IEA says the industry will exceed coal emissions by 2030 and account for half of the growth of oil demand by 2050. That's obviously not the direction we want to go. You'll remember two weeks ago on the recycling episode, Mitch Headland of Recycle Across America brought up this idea, this expansion of plastic manufacturing in the U.S. And I was kind of taken aback, but I see now it makes sense. The oil companies see the writing on the wall around gasoline and need to find new ways to expand profits. So they've chosen plastics. 90 petrochemical and plastics projects have been proposed in the U.S. over the last decade. Mike Bloomberg serves as a U.N. envoy on climate and says his campaign will reduce greenhouse gas emissions that are fueling the climate crisis. The president of the Plastics Industry Association, Matt Seaholm, responded by saying that, quote, if Mr. Bloomberg wants to help people, it couldn't be more clear that plastic saves lives and improves our quality of life. Huh? Yeah, right. <laughs> yes, the industry guy said plastic saves lives. I mean, I don't get it sure. either. What's the idea? Hey, what's the big idea anyway? What's the idea? What's the idea? What's the idea? What's the big idea? What's the big idea? I wonder what's the big idea. Moving on. Moving on. Let's get into the big idea. Carbon. I swear the more I look into these carbon numbers, the more confused I get. I've been trying to sort it out and I literally can't. The one number I do understand is atmospheric CO2. It's the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere relative to everything else. It's the biggest greenhouse gas, right? So when that number gets higher, it means we're doing worse in our quest. When it gets lower, it means we are reducing greenhouse gases. Does that make sense? Yeah, to an extent, once you learn what a greenhouse gas is, what it does, why it's important. But ultimately, like we talk about, it's the report card. Yeah, so on this episode, we're, we're talking about atmospheric CO2, and then we're talking about 
removal of CO2. Um, our first guest, Mike McGee, is the creator and founder of CO2.Earth, a website he started literally because he was also looking for the atmospheric carbon number and couldn't find it anywhere. So, Mike, when we're trying to solve for climate change, what is, in your opinion, the one number to pay attention to? Well, the number that's really missing on the landscape right now is atmospheric CO2. People aren't looking at it. They're not seeing it. They're not talking about it. Uh, and they're not connecting it with all of the other important numbers, the emissions from uh, human activities, the, the impacts of rising CO2 levels in the atmosphere on temperature, on uh, pH levels coming down in the ocean. That's uh, ocean acidification. So why is atmospheric carbon that number? Well, it's the, the biggest part of the, it's the biggest driver of human-caused global climate change. You know, yes, there are other greenhouse gases. Uh, methane is, is number two in terms of what scientists call global warming potential. Nitrous oxide is, is number three. You know, CO2, you know, if you look at the molecules that are coming from human emissions, it's CO2 is about 99% of all greenhouse gases. But in terms of the warming, it's it's more like about two thirds. So it's it's a pretty big chunk. It's also the, a really hard thing to fix. I mean, we're failing right now at turning around um, our emissions and getting them to zero, and, you know, sort of getting back in balance with humans and the natural system it being in a balance. There's lots of CO2 going into the atmosphere and coming out of the atmosphere naturally. And we're just pumping in CO2 levels um, into the air, into the atmosphere, and it's just accumulating and the earth can't, you know, the land, the vegetation, the soils, it can't absorb the CO2. The oceans, it, you know, only can absorb so much. And it's actually absorbing more than it used to. It's a dynamic kind of process, but the directionally, it's, we've got a real problem. We're, we're way out of balance. So it's, um, it's the thing to fix. It's, uh, it's the biggest thing. And it's also a, a leading indicator of what's, what's, co what's coming. And, you know, it's, you know, I think people hear CO2 numbers and they, they know enough about it to go, oh my God, that's, it's up, it's bad, right? But, but you know, it's also um, the solution number because we know how we can set things right. And, and that's by bringing the atmospheric CO2 levels down. Mike, tell us the story. How did you start focusing on the CO2 number? Um, Al Gore came to the Victoria Convention Center where we live uh, here in British Columbia. And my uh, first son, at the time he was 11, and I, I took him to see Al Gore. I wanted to expose him to some world leaders. And um, my son and I are sitting at the you know, way at the back and Al Gore is up there booming away and he's got that slide up where you see it's like 450,000 years worth of CO2 levels and they're, you know, bumping along with different ice ages and, and warming periods and then all of a sudden, boom, we hit the Industrial Revolution and, you know, the line's straight up. It really struck home with me that this number, yeah, this is the number. This is how we know if we're doing things right or wrong. And and a whole bunch of thoughts sort of collided all at once. And I was thinking, 
well, you know, this number isn't floating around. I, I'm pretty well read and I, I didn't know what the number was and Al Gore didn't put it on his chart. Like, and I want, wanted to know, well, what's the number today? Because I'm thinking, well, obviously it has to start coming down. At the same time, I also thought, well, it's this number's not around and well, I could create a website and put this number in a great big font right on the homepage and, you know, so people can can see it and I could pull something together and um, it would be a little bit of a, a niche contribution that somebody needs to do. And December 17th, 2007, I launched a website. You know, on the front, I had the CO2 levels from the Mauna Loa Observatory. It was 382 point something parts per million. And I've been posting the CO2 levels regularly ever since. Mike, you strike me as a very uh, well-tempered, even-keeled guy, but I have to know, you know, after 10, 15 years of essentially reporting the report card number of the planet and not seeing improvement, do you feel like you're just shouting into the abyss? Like, not to loop in, you know, the movie Don't Look Up, but I imagine if a meteor was plummeting towards the Earth and it was going to be the end of civilization, it would be the only number you see anywhere. But the equivalent of that in a, you know, CO2 parts per million or atmospheric, you can't even find it. Like you said, it's buried away in some government <laughs> black box. Do you just get to the point where, I mean, when you wake up in the morning, I can't believe I have to do this again and people aren't paying attention? Uh, you know, it's the opposite. I, I just feel driven to get this this number out, and it's the thing that I suppose gives me my hope because I think it's it just feels like this in my mind. My belief is that I shouldn't be the only one who's seeing it. Others should be seeing it, and I guess the thing I'm frustrated with is uh, not knowing exactly why we haven't been able to get this number, you know, make it bigger and turn it into a true gateway to action. All right, let's let's turn to a scientist now. Not only any scientist, this is the lead scientist for the UCLA Institute for Carbon Management. This team won the X Prize, the first university team ever to win an X Prize. They won an X Prize for their work in climate in carbon removal. Dr. Sant talks about how they remove carbon from concrete and also from seawater. Chris, you've got this interview. Take it away. The first thing I wanted to ask you is, as I was looking through what you've accomplished and winning the X Prize and all these things, you know, it's pretty clear you have some really unique traits that allow you to tackle some of the biggest problems on earth in a way that is unique, that is technology forward, that has never been done before. And my question is, why did you decide to use what I'm deeming your superpowers uh, and turn it towards carbon capture technology? Um, so it's so a couple of comments, Chris. So I think, you know, a little bit of this has to do with, with, with background. I grew up in India. I'm a third generation civil engineer. I've had both the privilege and the fortune to watch really, really, really significant things happen. My father and grandfather did some incredible work in India. 
Um, and I think, you know, I've, I've had the opportunity to see how, how development can make a difference. Um, now, you know, at that point in time, it was a different kind of development. It was buildings and infrastructure. But, but if you look to sort of the world that we are in today, the management of climate change and the mitigation of climate change is, is likely one of the defining challenges of this century and beyond. Mm, that's a good point. You know, as I mentioned earlier, you've used this superpower for carbon capture technology. And one of the primary goals of this show is to make sure people are aware of the importance of one number, which is atmospheric CO2, essentially. Um, I do leadership development. And one of the things I talk to a lot of teams about is people play differently when you're keeping score. Right. We need to keep score if we're going to really give it our all. Um, and what we've noticed or what we posit here at, at this podcast is there's not enough of a scoreboard on CO2. You know, people don't focus on that. Um, it, the layman, I should say, maybe not the expert, but the, the layman's don't focus on it. We can watch in real time what atmospheric CO2 is. Uh, do you think that should be a number? that everybody is aware of and that everybody follows, just like we look at the weather, should we have a global scoreboard that is atmospheric CO2 and we should monitor it as it goes up and goes down? So I think I think two comments, right? So I think while at a high level, we have to be focused on atmospheric CO2 levels, a different number, but that could be equally impactful, is to think about how many tons of carbon dioxide are we removing from the atmosphere? You can solve the problem in inverse. Um, and I think solving it in inverse gives you the ability to ratchet that number up much faster. Um, and, and, you know, fundamentally, as, as human beings, we're, we're, we, we like the idea of winning. Um, and seeing that you can make a difference at a faster pace is far more attractive than at a slower pace. And so to go back to atmospheric concentrations in the early 1800s is going to take more time than really stepping up the number of metric tons of carbon removal that we can do starting today, as an example. And so, you know, I, I don't think it matters which number we we go after. I think what's more important than the absolute number and its rate is the authenticity of that number, right? So being able to truly demonstrate in a, in a concrete, absolutely defensible sense that that is the amount of carbon removal that we're achieving. Mm. I think that's perhaps more important than anything else. Do you think we are able to define and support that number in a way that is authentic? Are we currently at that state? We can do that? Um, I think for for many, many, many technological solutions, we absolutely can do it. And it's something we should be focused on doing. Mm -hmm. This is something that we've really focused on for everything we've ever worked on, that we can indeed identify the 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 difference that we are making in terms of how much better than the status quo we are, or what is the extent of carbon removal that could be achieved, we've really tried to sort of build out our own internal understanding, our own internal thinking around how you would do this in an unambiguous way. You know, why did you choose on the carbon removal aspect as opposed to the carbon emissions? We want to think about it from two, from two different perspectives, right? So in general, the atmosphere is agnostic to, to whether it's eliminating a ton of carbon dioxide that's that's emitted or if it's a ton of carbon dioxide that's removed i think removal is much harder and much more expensive than the prevention of emission for the most part mm. and so 
But what I think is important to sort of focus on is really which of these is harder and in the limit, which of these will we really need to accomplish? You want to be focused on the fact that because avoidance and the reduction of emissions is cheaper, it's a great place to start. But eventually we'll have to get to removal because we'll get to a point where, you know, we've, we've reached the, the limits of how much emission we can prevent by reduction and by avoidance alone. But because removal is the end game, I think it makes sense to really think about removal as the hardest thing to do and avoidance and, and, and reduction of emissions as perhaps the easier things to do. So as we're talking about removing carbon dioxide uh, and why I was really so excited to talk to you and just uh, really impressed with what you've done, your team uh, won the X Prize for one of your technologies. And I read uh, it was the first university to win an X Prize based on this. So my first question, if you could articulate for the listeners, is uh, what is the X Prize and uh, what made you apply for that? Yeah, so it's a great set of questions, Chris. You know, we were, we'd been working on an approach that we thought might be useful to reduce and eliminate emissions from the production of concrete. It's work that we started about eight years ago. Um, it was classic academic research. You know, we'd had, we'd had some successes at the lab scale being able to do it. We had a super bright team of people that was working on this. And, and you know, I think one of the questions that we had is how do you take this to the next level? Um, we happened to be the right at the right place at the right time. You know, there was a call for for a carbon X prize that came along, the NRG COSIA carbon X prize that came along. And what the X prizes are, they're really incentive competitions that challenge innovators to develop technologies to fulfill a given set of criteria. And there was the incentive, the monetary incentive. So it's like one, we get to to test this, and two, if things go well, we get resources to actually make our dream a reality. Is that fair? I, I'm not sure I would contextualize it like that, right? Okay. So I think I think it's like it's like running a race. You run a race knowing that you would like to win, but without an assurance that you will win. Yeah. And and that's it. I think you really take on the the intent of the race because you think that you are competitive, and you think that there might be a great learning training outcome that comes out of it. I I you know I I want to be perfectly transparent in saying that when we chose to participate in in, in, the, in the energy COSIA X Prize. We thought we were super competitive. By no means did we know we'd win. Um, and, and and that said, you know, while winning is great, and you know, the, the team was clearly super happy to win. Um, and you know, like like you mentioned, we were the first university team to ever win an X Prize. I think what we learned from it far transcended everything, including the monetary prize. It taught us humility, if nothing else. Let's dig into the technology. Look for the average person listening, saying, "Hey, there's concrete." that sequesters carbon, right? Uh, none of that makes sense. So w first walk us through, what is it at a high level? And then what is the technology that makes it work? Yeah, so so happy to dig into this, right? So certain materials, when you mix them with water and expose them to carbon dioxide, will slowly absorb carbon dioxide and turn into cements. A really good example of this is limestone, right? We see limestone in nature. It's the stuff that seashells are made of. It's sort of the world's original cementation agent. What, what we ended up doing is we ended up essentially creating a play, so to speak, a synthetic analog to how limestone is produced in nature. But we did this using this material that's known as calcium hydroxide or portlandite. And, and you know, while this is a material that we've known for a really long time, will absorb carbon dioxide and, you know, will turn into calcium carbonate, which is limestone. Um, we hadn't quite figured out as a community what's the sweet spot of, of 
temperature and, and carbon dioxide concentration and relative humidity that's needed to make these reactions a race to completion. I think what we really did, and I think the, the, the innovation that we sort of really identified is identifying the sweet spot that we could make these reactions run to completion really quickly. And, and so, you know, whether it's, a com whether it's perseverance or luck, call it what you will, maybe a little bit of both, um, we figured out how to make these transformations of calcium hydroxide to limestone, which is a cementation agent, happen. And that's really the technology that we demonstrated over the course of the XPRIZE. So tell me, how does it work? Is it you, uh, you make a certain type of concrete, you build something with it, and over time it absorbs carbon? Or is it carbon is a necessary part of the construction process and you just essentially use a waste product to build something we're already going to use anyways? So the way I like to explain it is think about Toll House cookies um, and, and a convection oven, right? So there are two key innovations. One is sort of a new formulation for a Toll House cookie and the other one is a slightly different convection oven to bake them. We, we identified new innovations in formulation of, of making a concrete itself that are important. And what makes this concrete different is it's made of stuff that absorbs carbon dioxide as it gains strength. Um, the other part is, is a new type of convection oven that's really good at forcing carbon dioxide into the concrete. And so you put these two things together and that's sort of the, 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 the secret sauce, so to speak, that you now have a cookie that not only it, it tastes exactly the same and looks exactly the same as the original cookie, but in addition to that, because it eats carbon dioxide as it's being made, it ends up with a carbon footprint that's at least 50% lower than its traditional concrete counterpart. So is it a net negative? Like, let's say you make one concrete block and we've actually removed carbon from the world, or is it just, yes, it takes carbon to make this block, but this one just takes less? So at this point in, in, in the technology's development, it, it offers between a 50 to 100% reduction in carbon dioxide footprint as compared to a traditional block, as an example, but it's not negative. Um, all that said, you know, I want to be clear to point out that with the, with the ongoing developments in sort of the technology, it will be carbon negative, um, properly carbon negative. That's awesome. So speaking of what it will be, tell me about your vision. You know, let's go out. You you give me the time frame. Is it 20 years, 50 years, 100 years? Do we look at cities and we see the things that we use are actively making this planet better? Um, I think I think five years is too little, but I definitely do see a range of sort of pathways by which in the next 10 to 15 years, our built environment could be making a meaningful difference to the utilization of carbon dioxide in a way that it delivers a net negative outcome. There's a couple of drivers for this, and it's not simply technology. I think as, as a society, we're evolving towards wanting a, a, a lower carbon world. And I think that want is fundamental to the development of technology and not vice versa. Um, Technology helps us reduce and compress, so to speak, the, the, the cost of delivering innovation and, and the cost of delivering ideas. But there has to be a need and a want for it. And, you know, I think now the need and want is really sort of dominant. And I think that that's important to make this all happen. You know, not only are you saving the planet through this uh, concrete technology, but you also have um, a, a technology that is removing carbon from ocean water. Is that correct? From the ocean. That is correct. Tell me if the ocean is capturing carbon, uh, why don't we want to keep it there? Because now it's not in the 
atmosphere, it's in the water. The oceans are the biggest sink for CO2 that exists. So about 25% of all of the CO2 that we emit into the atmosphere is absorbed by the oceans, give or take about 9 billion tons. But that capacity is maxed and it's not going to go up any further. And the reason that, that that is important to point out is if we want to be able to expand the capacity of the oceans, we need to affect the alkalinity in effect. So what that means is we need to reverse the effects of ocean acidification. With that said, we came to the idea that, you know, simply an engineering intervention alone is going to be insufficient. And so we need to couple an engineering intervention with a really not large natural system. And, you know, when you look up, look around you, man, water is everywhere. And so the oceans become a, a really, really good target for you to be thinking about that natural system to couple with. The, the approach that we're talking about is actually really straightforward and involves running an electrical current through seawater and basically recombining the effectively re-altering and combining the constituents of seawater, which include carbon dioxide in a, in a really simple way, where you produce what are known as mineral carbonates, um, which are solid minerals, and, and you end up stabilizing carbon dioxide within these solid minerals and in the form of what are known as dissolved bicarbonate ions. The reason that we really focus on the oceans is water contains about 150 times more carbon dioxide than air. And what that means is it's easier to remove carbon dioxide from water than it is from air. The last thing to point out is because what we're running is what's known as an electrolysis process, you end up producing hydrogen, clean fuel, while simultaneously stabilizing or immobilizing carbon dioxide. So when you think about the synergy that you have, that you can do permanent immobilization, you can produce a clean fuel, and you can do it from water, which is, which is simpler to remove carbon dioxide from than air, you've got sort of a trifecta of, of opportunity that you want to be able to exploit. And that's sort of what gave birth to the sea change process. Ah, okay. Seems like a little bit of a panacea. When you um, immobilize carbon dioxide, could you tell me what that means? What happens to it and the benefit of that in the oceans? In, in effect, the simplest way to really think about this is by analogy to a dishwashing sponge. Right. So for all of us that do the dishes, think about you just having washed the dishes and you've got a sponge that's soaked with water, right? It's heavy. It doesn't want to absorb any more water. Well, what do you do next? Well, you squeeze the sponge out and it's going to absorb additional water. Now, instead of the sponge and water, think about the oceans and carbon dioxide. What we're trying to do is, in effect, reduce the amount of carbon dioxide that's contained in the oceans by removing it and stabilizing it within minerals, as an example, and in the form of dissolved bicarbonate ions, which allows us to enhance the capacity of the oceans to pull down carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And so what makes this attractive is that, in effect, you remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and you stabilize it in the oceans which is a great place to be able to stabilize it if you can. Here's what I want to end it on. You're dedicating your life to this thing, which is essentially the health of our planet and the continuity of our species, essentially, is what's on the line. Do you think we will persevere? Do you think this is something we will solve as a species? Every single time we've been faced with adversity, we've overcome adversity. And so if, if the past is any indication of the future... I think the short answer is yes, we will succeed. But but simultaneously, I think it's also important to point out that the development of technology and innovation has have helped us overcome an enormous number of challenges, but also lots of adversity. Right? Maybe a, a really a really recent example to sort of have in the public eye is 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 vaccines um, as an example. And so with that with that said and that considered, I think absolutely, you know, we 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 will overcome.
Considering carbon is the simplest building block of life, it's pretty complicated. But you can see we have solutions, and as long as we continue to understand this issue on some level, we're going to beat it. I just take a little comfort in the fact that there are people far smarter, far more dedicated than I that are solving these problems. I'm going to stick to this behind the microphone, spread the news, and let people like Dr. Sant be the ones who dig us out of the hole. The Week on Earth is produced by Elise Louie with music by Amy Eileen Wood. Special thanks to Dr. Guarav Sant from UCLA and Mike McGee of CO2.Earth. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is growing and it's all thanks to you. All right, then. We'll see you again next week, right here on Earth. Earth.